Welcome to the Hyper Guy Motivational Podcast. I'm so lucky today to have two wonderful friends of mine on my podcast, Dr. Paul Danzig and Jennifer Schaefer. And I'm going to go ahead and throw this over to Mr. Danzig to conduct this interview. And thank you so much, Jennifer, for being here today. I'm so appreciative. You're very welcome. It's a privilege. Thank you. Martin, thanks for the opportunity to interview a public service rock star, Jennifer Schaefer. Jennifer, you're the executive director for the Board of Parole Hearings in California. Uh, when your friends ask you what you do, what do you say? I work for the state. <laughs> Many people in my private life do not know what I do. <laughs> Besides working for the state, how do you explain what the Board of Parole Hearings is and its role within the state? Oh, so the Board of Parole Hearings, we are the paroling authority for the state prison system. We determine when life, people serving long terms of imprisonment or life terms, life with the possibility of parole, when they can be safely released um, or whether they should stay in prison. So it's a discretionary release um, process and we're sort of the arbiters of that. We determine who should get released and who shouldn't. I want to ask you some more questions about that. Uh, but following Martin's great format for this podcast, we start off on, you know, how to get started in life and how to get to where you are today. And when you think back to your childhood, um, how would you describe it? Wow. Um, I would say up until the age of 10, which is when my parents got divorced, it was very, sort of the nuclear family uh, living in suburbia in Southern California. Back in the day when um, it wasn't so tough to live off of a single income, my father worked full time, my mother uh, stayed home to raise my brother and me. And um, it was a pretty, it was a very safe and very um, loving environment. So I was very fortunate in that respect. What's one of the best memories you had growing up? Oh my goodness. I, you know, one of my significant faults is um, I, I don't have a really good memory. I don't have, um, I don't have a lot of memories of my childhood. It's really awful to say, but um, I, I have a hard time differentiating between pictures that I saw and what I actually experienced. So I, I don't know if that's a cognitive issue for me. But um, I do remember going to Atlanta once um, when we were young and um, just seeing how different uh, there were friends of a family who moved from Pasadena, uh, where I was born and spent the first few years of my life. They moved to Atlanta. And so we went to go see them. And um, it was just really neat. They had like a swimming hole and um, all this mud everywhere. And we were just kids running around having a great time. So that's one memory that I, I do remember. Was that a family road trip? It was actually, I think, my first time on an airplane. Um, so it was uh, it was memorable in that respect. But no, we did not drive across the country. It was going to take too long. Man, you missed out. I know. Stopping every couple hours for the kids to stretch your legs. <laughs> no, we didn't. Uh, we didn't actually... Uh, I don't remember very many trips growing up. We, um, we did not, I don't think money. Um, you know, my father was a public servant and he was in education. So uh, I don't think that there was a whole lot of discretionary money for that kind of stuff. I want to ask you more about how you got into public service, uh, but let me ask you just a couple more questions about, you know, growing up when think about, you know, those people that might've had a strong impression on you, on those early years, who comes to mind? First and foremost, my mother. Um, she was a whole, she was around a lot. Um, she was a teacher as well. So she was a credentialed teacher and was very involved in um, school for us and just um, around a lot. She always had a very strong sense of fairness, uh, what was fair. And um, she was a, she, she is a very kind person, um, treat others well, things like that. So I, I think a lot of that, a lot of my values um, and character were formed in those early years. When you saw fairness play out, what did it look like? I think it was always, you know, 
girls in particular can be really mean. <laughs> Children in general can be mean. And I remember, um, you know, just having conversations about, well, how would you feel if that were you, right? And uh, I was, I was often on the receiving end of some of that. There were, there were popular girls who were just mean, and uh, I never really understood um, how people could treat one another that way. So it was always sort of a mystery to me. When you're bringing that up, I suspect you're thinking of someone in particular. You know, how do you, <laughs> how do you think about you know that interaction with that person or that group of girls? Um, how do, you, how do you think about it now? It was, I think, typical just childhood, you know, a lot of immaturity, a lot of um, insecurity, a lot of just um, replicating, I'm sure, the examples that were set and for them. And I can't believe that anybody could be particularly happy, right? I always think that if somebody's acting out, it's usually from a place of fear or hurt. And so when I look back on that, I often wonder what their home lives were like, right? And what kinds of examples they had. So probably more from empathy. And then I'll be a little bit catty. I mean, later in life, I found out where they ended up and um, it didn't go so well for them. And that's that's sad to me. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that's one of the things that we recognize in life, right? Where people start off on a certain pattern of behavior. And if it's a good pattern of behavior, you know, they have a different type of outcome than if it's a bad pattern of behavior that they can't get out of. Um, certainly that comes into the mix. How would you describe your relationship with your brother? For many years, we were very, very close. Um, as we got older, we sort of went separate ways. Um, but as children, uh, he was three years older than me. Um, he was, I'm sure I was a really annoying younger sibling and so I was on the receiving end of, um, of that annoyance. <laughs> I, there were oh, him and his friends, some of the more notorious things. They had a grass eating torture where they would like pin me down on the, on the lawn in the backyard and um, tickle me until I opened my mouth and they would shove grass in it. And, um, you know, they'd, we had a lemon tree and we had a tree. Uh, sort of a playhouse, elevated playhouse that my father had built, uh, kind of a fort. And they would just huck lemons at us when we were up in that house. So, I, I mean, typical childhood stuff. Um, later on, when my parents got divorced, um, I think our relationship actually got much closer because it was, um, I remember having conversations about, we're not going to let them split us up. We're going to stay together right? As if it was our choice. <laughs> but I remember having uh, conversations with him about that. And he would be every once in a while, sort of the protective older brother. But more often than not, I think he was just genuinely annoyed <laughs> by me wanting to know what was going on in his life. You know, that short story, I could see how the relationship really shifted from something that was just playful of, you know, kids going out and having a good time and getting into trouble, but maybe innocent trouble, then having some really deep conversations very quickly about what your future yeah. holds. What do you walk away from those experiences of, you know, thinking about your brother in that way? You know, I have to give some thought to that. I think as the oldest child, he experienced my parents' divorce differently than I did. Um, I think he... I think my mom confided in him a lot more about what was going on in her life. And it was probably a very impressionable time for him. So I think that was hard. I think it was hard uh, in general. Plus uh, my father was assistant principal of the high school that my brother attended. And so I think that was probably difficult for him. Um, but he had a great group of friends growing up and they were all sort of an extended family. And um, yeah, I, I do miss those times. Um, I, a few times they would take me to the beach with them because they had to, <laughs> if they wanted to go, but, um, they were a good, good group of kids. Man, it sounds like there's a lot of good memories there. Yeah, they were, um, it was neat. I, he was, he was fortunate, uh, in some respects in that he grew up and 
with the same group of kids all the way through high school. Um, we moved. Uh, I moved away um, after my ninth grade year. Um, so I never went to the high school. The high school was uh, 10th through 12th grade. So uh, I, we moved to Lexington, Kentucky. And my brother stayed back because he graduated from high school and didn't have didn't move in with my dad and stepmother uh, like I did. So um, I had another three years that were that was a very different experience um, than what he had before he moved out. What was that transition like going from Pasadena to Lexington? So I should be clear, I lived in Pasadena only until I was about four. Um, we moved to Arcadia after that. So we were in Arcadia, California, another, you know, right adjacent to, to Pasadena. Um, going from Southern California to Lexington, Kentucky was a bit of a shock, um, but it was, it was a really good experience. It's not often when you um, get to get the freedom of, you know, nobody knowing you. Um, nobody having the baggage of, you know, 15 years or 10 years of, of interaction. So I thought that was really, there was a sense of sort of freedom with that. It was, it was interesting. You could almost reinvent yourself if that's what you wanted to do. And I remember at the time thinking, wow, I could, I could be anybody, right? Nobody, nobody knows me. Nobody has a history. So it would, I thought that was really interesting. It was a very different um, environment. So in Southern California, we had a lot of sports. We, you know, could do a lot of things um, there. Um, for for girls, it was limited to like a dance team, um, cheer, and softball. Um, there wasn't a whole lot else um, as far as extracurricular activities that I recall. I was only there for a year. So I, um, I didn't have the full high school experience there. But academically, they were far more advanced um, than the schools that I'd been in in Southern California. And I thought that was interesting. You mentioned you're only there for a year. Where'd you go? Was that your senior year of high school? No. No, I was there my sophomore year. Okay. And then we moved back to California and uh, I was in San Diego. So okay. I ended up uh, graduating from Point Loma High School in San Diego. When you think about those transitions, those physical moves, how did you reinvent yourself when you first went to the Lexington area and then maybe down to San Diego? I don't know that I saw, you know, it's nice not having people know you, right? So there was no, nothing to explain, nothing to, um, I don't know how to explain it, but but the reality is you can't really change who you are. <laughs> so I don't think I changed that much. I just didn't, uh, it was just nice to be able to, to be open to forge new, you know, whatever relationships, um, friendships, um, interests, things like that. But ultimately I ended up probably pretty much the same from one place to another. After high school, uh, where'd you go from there? Oh, let's see. Um, from San Diego, I went to Santa Monica, Santa Monica Community College. I ended up moving in with my mother and stepfather after high school in West Los Angeles and went to community college for a couple of years. When you're um, either at the community college or um, college after that, uh, were you involved in any extracurricular activities? <laughs> working. <laughs> I pretty much worked consistently since I was 15. I was, um, I was working full time while I was going to community college. And uh, back then, I don't know if it's still the case, but you could arrange your schedule so you could take all your classes on Tuesdays and Thursdays, which left five days a week to, to work full time. So I was able to, to do that for the better part of two years uh, before I transferred to UC Davis. You know, pulling out a lot of just uh, foundational human skills and uh, characteristics that started to evolve. You described this whole idea around empathy when you had to uh, interact with those girls at school and then getting into this strong professional work ethic. Um, what other values surfaced for you in those younger years? Hard work, definitely. I think um, both my parents had a, had a, pretty hard work ethic. And certainly my, 
my grandparents. I had, um, I had really, really nice um, maternal grandparents who were involved in my early childhood before I moved away and um, continued that. They were, they, they were very low income. Uh, they lived in a, in a trailer park the entire life, uh, my entire life. Um, and I don't mean like a single wide or double wide. I mean a trailer you could actually pull behind a truck, like a silver bullet kind of trailer. And um, I remember, um, you know, spending nights with them every once in a while in that tiny little um, trailer, just me. And that was kind of special um, because it was just alone time. But my, my grandfather in particular was um, very, very keen on hard work. And he probably came from a generation where there weren't many feminists, right? But he teach me to ch change the oil on my car. He was like, you are going to be self-sufficient. And um, he, he was always about taking care of things. Like if you're, if you're going to invest in something, um, you should really take care of it. And so uh, those were probably some of the more meaningful values that we had. Um, so the first 10 years of my life was in Bible study and Sunday school and going to church on the weekends and church camps and um, a variety of, uh, of other church functions, which continued in Kentucky. And then when we came back from Kentucky, I sort of dropped out of a lot of that, which caused a lot of consternation, I will admit to. <laughs> Why don't we visit your grandparents for a second? You know, when you think about visiting them in their trailer, are there certain smells or things that you see that pop into your mind when you think about them? Oh, Coke floats. <laughs> that was my favorite. <laughs> Coke floats. Um, they had uh, lemon drops in a little tiny candy dish. And uh, they had a radio that was really old that in order for it to play, you had to put a little penny in a slot and it just sort of sat there. I would always play with that little radio. So those are the things that I remember most of their, of their little trailer. Oh man, I love that. Uh, you just, when you were describing your parents, you shared a little bit about what they did. Your father being a principal, at least for some period of time at uh, your brother's middle school and your mom, a, a school teacher. Um, was that their main professions growing up as um, within the education field? So they both went to college and they both got their teaching credentials and they were married at 18 and 19 years of age. So that happened after um, they got their education, after they were married. They um, went to a private Christian school, um, the precursor to Point Loma Nazarene College. Back then it was called Paznaz, um, Pasadena Nazarene College. Um, so my father continued working and I should correct, um, he was assistant principal of the high school, although he was a counselor in middle school before that, it's my understanding. Um, and then my mom actually stayed home. She did not work uh, once my brother was born. So she went, they ultimately ended up going in very, very diverse um, directions post-divorce, post-remarriage. And uh, my mother went on uh, with my stepfather to be founders of the Los Angeles chapter of the Make-A-Wish Foundation. So that was her job. She was executive director for Make-A-Wish for several years in Los Angeles. And then my father went into a series of sort of private investment opportunities with a variety of businesses that um, just never really panned out for him. So it was, it was a struggle for him once he left education. I recognize those are very defining moments as you're watching it happen within your parents of seeing how they're making professional contributions. What stands out the most of just watching them go through their transitions within different employment opportunities? I was probably more, I didn't, I I don't know why, but I, I really did not get involved in my father's businesses at all. So I didn't, I'm not sure I really understood uh, what they did um, and what, what his role was in those businesses. So I sort of, um, I don't have a whole lot of, of input or observations about that other than 
money was always an issue. It was, um, they were always struggling financially is how I perceived it at the time. And they had a lot of relationship problems. Both my parents did um, with their second marriages. So I think the, the way I describe a lot of it is there was just a lot of drama. There was a lot of emotional um, interactions while I was a teenager sort of doing my own thing, right? So I, I was off with my friends uh, doing a variety of different things and they were very absorbed in their relationships. Professionally, um, I, sp I did spend some time, once I moved to LA, I spent some time uh, volunteering for the Make-A-Wish Foundation in LA. And it was interesting to see my mom in that role, um, you know, having staff people and interacting with um, donors, you know, and very, uh, my stepfather came from a very wealthy family. Um, he personally was not wealthy. He actually had a series of failed um, business ventures as well. Um, but he was probably what you would consider to be a trust fund um, adult. Um, so he was always sort of cared for um, from a trust fund, but I'm, I'm not sure that his business um, businesses worked out so well for him. But he was very, he was on the board with Make-A-Wish and um, they were very involved in that. So I have some great memories, you know, they would do celebrity tennis tournaments and you know, I'd be working the bar, or, I don't know, giving out t-shirts or <laughs> whatever, just being a, being a volunteer. And I worked in their office. Um, over the summers, um, I would come down from college and answer phones and help make um, celebrity wishes, uh, help orchestrate uh, some of those just for short periods of time. It must have been pretty cool to be a part of it. And watching your mom in action and also being involved in something that has such deep meaning to it. Yeah. Uh, it was, it was hard to see um, really small children, very, very sick. And uh, that, that stuck with me for quite some time. Makes you very grateful, grateful to have uh, healthy children and just grateful to have your own health. I want to ask you some uh, questions about your career on when you think about maybe the, mid twenties onwards that you start getting settled into your profession. I mean, you're have made a career out of public service of, of being able to be in these spots where um, there's a lot happening from a lot of different angles that we'll get into from the policy side, the stakeholders, et cetera. But what brought you into public service to begin with? Oh, I wish I had a really, really great answer for that, but I, I don't. Um, I, it was very random. My entire career has been very random. <laughs> it has been, um, you know, just being open to opportunities. Um, I, I graduated from UC Davis with a degree in economics. I had no idea what I wanted to do. Um, I did a series of inner, I, I did an internship that went horribly wrong. And when I think back on, um, UC Davis and perhaps the counselor that set that up for me, the career counselor, um, knowing what I know about now about employment liability and all kinds of things, it's no wonder that they sort of built, bent over backwards to set up informational interviews for me after that disastrous internship. But um, it was, um, I, you know, I just walked into the state capitol one day and I remember thinking, wow, I, I want to work here. I, I, there was something about the energy in that place that was really, really um, enticing to me. And one of the informational interviews I went on was with uh, somebody, she was the lead lobbyist, I think, for the California Medical Association, which is also very random, but obviously the career counselor knew her for some, from some reason. And the first thing she said to me is, if you want to work in that building, if you want any respect, you need to go get your JD. And I kid you not, I said, what's a JD? <laughs> and she <laughs> told me, you need to go to law school. And I went, okay, um, I'll, you know, I'll think about that. And um, she told me that she had gone to Lincoln Law School in Sacramento, even though she'd been accepted at some pretty prestigious law schools, but because her husband was in town and she wanted to continue working, um, going to night school was um, the best option for her. And she said, you'll get out of it, whatever you put into it. And it doesn't really matter where you go. You just need to get your JD. So I left her office and I drove to Lincoln Law School. And I said, I walked in, <laughs> talked to the dean and said, 
what do I need to do to go to law school? And he asked me about my, my grade average at uh, Davis and that I had a degree. And he said, you can start in two weeks if that's what you want, but you'll have to start the, you'd have to take the LSAT as just a, um, you know, a formality. And so I started law school two weeks later and uh, it was part of law school that got me, uh, I ended up interning um, for free two days a week uh, at the attorney general's office because uh, some of my professors actually worked at the attorney general's office. So um, not, not the most um, charted path uh, by any stretch, um, but it, it worked for me, um, obviously. It was great. And then once I, once I got into it, I was absolutely hooked. And you really had some mentors encouraging you to go into a specific direction, not necessarily telling you what to do, but telling you what you need in order to get there. I, yeah. I mean, I never, I never spoke to that woman again. Um, so it's not like we sort of had a relationship. I just left her office and went, okay, well, I'll go check out the law school then. And like, well, this sounds like a good idea. <laughs> and I, I could afford it. Uh, that was the biggest issue is um, you could pay as you went. I was absolutely adamant. Uh, I had an experience in uh, at Davis uh, early on. I uh, must have been just turned 20, I think, when I transferred to UC Davis. And we were playing intramural flag football. And one of my it turns out to be one of my dearest friends said, just go down the middle, you'll be fine. And so I took the ball and I ran down the middle and I tried to get around this huge opponent and I stepped in a pothole and I snapped my, my ankle in five places and uh, ended up having surgery and a plate and screws and pins and a staple in my ankle and $13,000 in debt um, at age 20. And those, uh, collection agencies were um, relentless. And so by the time I got to, to law school, I was like, I'm not going in debt over anything ever. Uh, so I was, I was pretty adamant about that. So Lincoln Law School was a great opportunity for me because I could, I could work full time, go to law school at night and, um, and intern two days a week <laughs> and still and graduate debt free. So that was a great, that was a good thing. No wonder you avoided my question about playing intramural sports or doing intramural activities when you're at university. Um, with that story, I started to cringe and all the hairs on my arms started to stand up when you told me you broke your ankle five times. It's, uh, anyways, it sounds horrible. It, it was painful. I would not uh, recommend that. <laughs> but we actually, we played a lot. I didn't play a whole lot of sports growing up. I played, well, I played baseball or softball and um, soccer, uh, Little League, you know, I was young. Um, but when I went and then when I went to Kentucky, I played softball. But after that, when I came back to California, I, I'd always been a runner or jogger is probably more appropriate. Um, I, I from a, I remember being 12 and um, 11 or 12 and running. That was always sort of my outlet. So um, while I didn't play a whole lot of organized sports, um, especially in high school, we did play a lot of intramural, intramural sports at Davis. That was fun. Uh, that's always a good time, right? You build different types of connections and maybe falls back to some of your earlier descriptions on getting to know people and being able to see them that way. Yeah, my roommate and I, we had a good time. <laughs> there are midnight leagues, right? Which back then I could do, it would kill me today. But, you know, playing uh, field hockey indoors at midnight with a bunch of other college kids was fun. I think they still have them in the middle of the night, don't they? Uh, I think so. At least in different sports. When I um, when I Googled you, all these great accomplishments came up. Um, I don't want to go through your bio. Martin's listeners can uh, Google your name and pull up your bios online. But I do want to touch base on some of your professional highlights. What would you say are some of your professional highlights uh, from where you've been within public service? Sorry, thinking about that. I... You know, I have a really hard time sort of uh, identifying that. Um, and the reason being, every job I ha I've had, I've enjoyed for, for different reasons. I've always been able, thankfully, to find meaning in whatever job I was doing. 
and I was always very motivated, um, probably a little bit too much of a people pleaser at some point, right? Where I just, I wanted to do well. And I wanted to, um, you know, if, if somebody expected me to do something, that was kind of it. You just, you do it, right? Because that's what was expected of you. So I had, um, I had some great experiences early on. The attorney general's office was, um, I worked for a special assistant, really, really smart, smart man who's uh, still very good friends of our family. And uh, he, he really, he believed in me. He was, he, he let me draft legislation. You know, I was 20, 22, 24, and I was drafting legislation and uh, helping to coordinate uh, statewide advisory councils and lobbying bills. I was testifying before the legislature. I mean, it was, it was really, really extraordinary when I look back on that now. Um, I can't imagine an attorney, the attorney general today, I don't know, maybe it still happens, but letting a graduate legal assistant testify on behalf of the office for a bill that we were um, sponsoring. Um, it was really, it was an extraordinary experience. Um, then I went to the Board of Control. It's now the Victim Compensation. I don't know if it's still and Government Claims Board or not. I'm not sure what its official name is anymore. Uh, but I was there for seven years, and that was a great experience. Um, I played a variety of different roles and uh, had a great chief counsel who, again, really believed in me and promoted me. And she's still somebody I, I talk to and stay in touch with. Um, we a performance review, which we were talking about a little bit before the show, that was, uh, that was a really intense experience. And uh, being assistant secretary over um, victim services for corrections, um, that was a really, that was a really heavy job. Um, my heart goes out to people who work with crime victims on a daily basis, because that's, um, that's a really difficult uh, job to do. Um, it was, um, but incredibly meaningful. Oh my gosh. Um, hearing, hearing the, the stories of people who have suffered so much um, can be daunting, but again, so grateful, grateful for the opportunity and amazing people with extraordinary courage to tell their stories. It was, it was a really good time. One of the things I recognize at least in maybe some of your more recent experiences um, is how you're inter interacting with people at their lowest points, uh, whether it's the, through the victim services or, you know, your work now with parole. How do you make sense of that, of how that ties in with, you know, the work that you're doing and what you're being asked to do from an administrative capacity? You know, it's interesting. I'm not sure I would, I don't think interacting with folks, most of the folks that come before the board um, have been incarcerated for 20, 25 years or longer. Um, so the crimes that those that they're serving time for happened decades ago. And so I, I think I would I would rephrase that. I think at sentencing and when the crime occurred was the lowest part of their respective lives, right? I mean, those were like the worst possible times. When we see them 20, 25 years later, we still see the very real and negative impact um, that those crimes had on the survivors and their family members. Um, for the incarcerated population, it, it's, it's a real mixture. You see some people who are still so broken um, and still you know, do not um, display pro, what we would call pro-social behavior. But there's another very large segment of that population who are completely different from who they were when they committed those crimes. And to see sort of the humanity and the, the um, tremendous opportunity uh, for people to overcome their backgrounds and how I, that part is really inspiring um, when you can see how people can very dramatically change their lives. So it's, um, and you see that on both, both sides, both from crime victims um, and from, from the incarcerated population. It's truly extraordinary um, how the capacity 
um, humanity has for, for changing when, when they have the impetus to do so. As you're describing, I'm thinking back to a comment you made earlier about one of those earlier life lessons that your mom taught you about mm -hmm. how to be empathetic when you're interacting with the mean girls. How does that carry across with how you're interacting with some of the people that are coming before you on the board side um, that have done pretty horrible things maybe in their past, um, but getting into that space that you also recognize indirectly about reinventing oneself. How does that all tie in together? Uh, you know, a lot of people who uh, work with incarcerated population will tell you that um, they have a, they have a motto that uh, hurt people, hurt people. And I, I think we see that um, daily. I mean, the, as horrific as their crimes are, when you hear the circumstances in which they were raised, many of them, it's, it's just in, for somebody who, you know, I consider myself to be white privileged, right, that grew up in suburbia in a very safe environment, it, it could not be more different. And so seeing that people actually survived those incredibly difficult um, upbringings, so many challenges and so much trauma, and they're fully functioning, incredibly empathetic, very, very, um, and they're just, the transformation can be just beyond words, truly extraordinary. So I think when I, when I look back on it, there is just sort of this central theme that I don't, I think there's a very rare, there's probably a certain segment, small segment of our population who actually enjoy, you know, bringing harm to other people. I think that that's a very rare circumstance. I think the overwhelming majority of people um, act out um, from a place of, of fear or hurt. And that ends up being sort of how they end up doing these really horrific crimes. It's a lot of drugs, a lot of anger, and a lot of fear. And um, neglect, really poor mo role models, um, and just not knowing any different. I mean, when you're, when you're raised in those environments, how could you know anything different? Um, it would be, I would imagine, what you see on TV, which is not particularly real or, you know, your, your own environment. There's just, there's not a whole lot um, you can experience outside of that. You know, I want to recognize that, you know, how you're leading the board is different than maybe how other states um, are thinking about mm -hmm. um, the incarcerated and proles. And I'm wondering how you think about, you know, your counterparts in other states and how that influences um, how you think about how California operates? So it's hard for me to answer that without getting a little bit legalese. Um, California is one of very few um, states, I think there's only nine in the union, that have a liberty interest in parole. And so what that means is that in order to, when you're considering somebody for parole in California, um, they have a certain uh, number of due process rights that you would not have if you lived in a different state. In other states, it's purely discretionary and it's a, an extension of the governor's um, unfettered discretion um, when exercising executive um, powers. So powers like pardons and clemency, it's at that level where they can say yes or no uh, to somebody for any reason or for no reason at all. And it's not reviewable by a court. In California, they have a liberty interest in parole. So there's several due process rights um, that have, there are due process rights that need to be um, honored. And our decisions are reviewable by a court. So I, I actually much prefer California's model because it's a lot more objective in that respect. Um, I think that we just apply the law, which means uh, right now in California, if we find that somebody poses a current unreasonable risk, we deny them parole. 
Um, but if they don't pose a current unreasonable risk to public safety, then um, by under the law, they're deserving of a grant and they can be released. When I, I think about um, your work, I think about you know public service more broadly and recognizing that you know, there are certain parameters that we all fall into regardless of what our specialization might be, right? Yours is focused on the parole side. When you think about, you know, that objectivity that's brought in based on the letter of the law, I suspect that there's also some interpretation that comes into play. Um, mm -hmm. And there's also a lot of strong emotions coming in from a lot of different types of angles that maybe, you know, other um, organizations wouldn't face. So for example, you have the, the big P political side of the house, you have the community engagement, you have families involved, you have your team, you have staff, right? All those are coming at the same time. But help me understand um, how that, um, how all those start to merge and how it impacts your approach to leading the office in a very specific direction. Wow. Um, I think if I were to sum it up, it would be a, for many years, I think the, the board was very political. Um, and I'm talking, you know, decades ago, a couple of decades ago. Um, I think the law changed that um, when they changed our standard um, to say that uh, we had to have some evidence that somebody um, continues to pose, you know, a current unreasonable risk. That really changed the dynamic of our hearings. But I think perhaps more importantly, uh, there was a conscious effort to depoliticize the board and to what I call professionalize the board, which was um, to have hearing officers, board members who really understand the law and can apply the law in a, in a neutral, unbiased manner. And really insulating the board from a lot of the politics. I mean, that, I think that was a very conscious decision. And now if I were to sort of reduce it all to one sort of saying or, or principle, it was, it's this, if, if people are upset with the decisions that we're making, chances are they're upset with the law. And so I will frequently tell people, well then, you know, go, go focus on changing the law, but don't ask the board to be unethical, right? And not apply the law to the facts of the case. So I think in that respect, you know, it sounds kind of maybe a little esoteric, but it's it was a way of insulating the board to a certain extent. And it happened quite naturally because once you start focusing on the law, um, you know, it, it's, it's not about you anymore. It's not about the individual decision maker. It's about the law. And there is some interpretation, but part of that is um, we, we really invested in a lot of training and trying to understand the science and the research um, behind risk. What actually aggravates or mitigates somebody's risk in, in the community? And that's, that was really significant shift for us. Uh, help me make a distinction between law and policy. Mm -hmm. And if you could frame it around uh, maybe the stability of uh, one or the other, do they carry the same type of stability when we're thinking long-term? Um, help me understand how that looks maybe different in, in your world uh, than maybe some other organizations. So the law to me is really understanding the statutes, the case law, and um, generating regulations that govern our practices, how we make decisions. To me, policy is more along the lines of, um, how would I explain that? Um, you know, the procedures or the, um, the principles that govern how we, how we, um, how we use the law or how we apply the law. And so, I mean, I'll give you some, some principles, some principles, um, which is probably more policy, but I think it's also crosses over into, into the law. One of the things we can't do is make arbitrary decisions. 
um, one of the things that um, we are always very focused on is trying to increase consistency in decision-making. So if somebody goes to one panel and gets a grant, um, that same person should have the same outcome if they went to a different panel, right? If they just happen to get a different hearing panel. So the kinds of policies that we put in place to try and, and manage that, um, it's a lot of informed decision-making. Um, one, of one of the principles um, that we use to govern how we act, how we carry ourselves, interact with folks is, you know, you shouldn't be making exceptions for anyone um, unless you can clearly identify why you're making this exception for this person and that you have some assurances that every other similarly situated person will be treated the same. And if you can't answer that, if you can't make that, that connection, that promise, then you shouldn't be making the exception. And so to me, I don't, I don't know if that's the difference between policy and, and law, but that's kind of how I wrap my brain around it. Yeah. When I'm, picking up is this neutrality and objectivity that helps guide what you do uh, because you can fall back to something that's very legal in nature that's defined. And while there could be some interpretation to it, it sounds like there's a common consensus right now on how it's interpreted um, and how you apply it. Is that a fair way of framing it? I think it is, but I, you touched on something that's really important. And that is when you, when you're a discretionary, when you're exercising discretion, in decisions that impact people so significantly. I mean, somebody's liberty interest and the safety of our communities, two really important aspects of, of what we do, the considerations that we take in, into account. What the, what the research has shown is that when people are engaging with the government in these kinds of high stakes decisions, so um, court, you know, uh, court procedures at the local level, discretionary parole at the state level. It's less important what the outcome is. Like when they're, when they're looking back and determining whether this was a fair process, it's less correlative to the outcome than it is their sense of procedural fairness. Was it a fair process? And for, for us, having integrity in how we are making these decisions, that's kind of the only thing we have, right? So if we, if people don't believe that we have integrity, then there's no sense of procedural fairness. And I think that there's an idea that these are just political decisions and it couldn't be further from the truth. So we talk a lot about integrity and about doing the right thing and about applying the law in the most, um, neutral um, way possible. I feel a pressure of where our society is right now um, and how we think about public service and the, um, mm. the influence of politics coming in, the influence of social media coming into play. How do you create stability across administrations and across maybe political will if there's a variation to it? So obviously we can't control um, you know, changes in the law. Um, we can certainly opine or give, you know, an assessment of what impact a change in the law would be. But that's that's a different branch of government, right? I mean, that's a combination between the, the legislature and um, the executive branches. And then all of that's interpreted by the judicial branch. So we don't directly control um, many of those levers. But what we can do is become the most professional well-informed um, board um, possible and have the most efficient processes if possible and make the most informed decisions possible. And so by focusing on those things and becoming sort of experts on risk, I, I think it has sort of, again, insulated the board. I, I really, I don't feel that the board is political in any way, shape, or form. We're just doing our jobs and uh, applying the law. So I think um, I I don't see the I don't see the political aspect of it. 
Um, I'm sure there are people that opine a lot about um, the board. You won't see us very much on, you won't see us on social media. You won't see us um, doing press releases. We just, we really don't engage in that respect. And uh, maybe other folks do, but I sort of, I put it on the same level as the superior court system. I mean, you would never see a judge or a courtroom, you know, issuing press releases about outcomes of decisions. I just, I see us much more as a quasi-judicial body and not one to sort of engage. So we just sort of keep our heads down and do our work and try to provide as much information to people as possible um, so that people understand that we are safely releasing people and that we are um, applying the law. I'm getting a really good sense about how uh, you operate externally facing. I wanna ask you a question about how you operate within your team, maybe getting into that leadership space. How would you describe your relationship with your team? Oh, so First, you got to define the, I'm an attorney, right? You got to define the team. <laughs> um, so I, I think we have different layers of teams, right? So if I talk about my executive team, amazing group of people, um, such dedicated civil servants, incredibly intelligent, very competent in what they do. We've been together for the better part of the entire 11 years I've been at the board, which is just unprecedented, I think, in state government. Um, they've been sort of either directly on the executive team or tangential. Um, our chief counsel actually represented us um, for the better part of two decades at the attorney general's office. So she, she knows our business better than most. And um, they're just a really, really good group of people. We um, have open discussions. I and mean, one of my rules is speak up. <laughs> it's one of my tenets of management is, I think it's imperative that people take responsibility for their own um, morale, right? And the morale of the office as a whole. And that means speaking up. You shouldn't um, give us a benefit of the doubt, right? Um, if we're making a decision that you disagree with, give us the opportunity to explain why we're making that decision or, you know, give us the opportunity to get more input and realize that it was a bad decision and change direction. So, they're just, uh, they're a really, really good group of people. So that's one level of team, right? For the board as a whole, we have about 320 employees and um, very diverse backgrounds and specialization and education. And um, I really, it's not just about me, but I'm, I'm really proud of, of the environment, um, generally speaking at the board. Um, people are very friendly. Um, they support one another. Um, I'm sure that's not, you know, universal. Um, I'm sure that's not everybody's experience at the board, but um, I think more so than many other agencies, um, there's just a real sense of sort of family and people having each other's backs and wanting to do the right thing. And that's, that's really special in state government in particular. I'm sure it's special generally, but um, I've had opportunities to leave the board. And in my experience, um, yeah, I've been at really large agencies with um, Department of Justice and the Attorney General's office, uh, another small public board that had about 125 employees, and then all of corrections with 60,000 employees. And in, I've never had an environment like I have here, like we have here. And I would, um, I wouldn't trade that for the world. There's something amazing about being able to work with a great group of people who you know are always going to have your back, and who are going to be professionals and just genuinely nice human beings. So we're really, really fortunate in that respect. I love that. What inspires you? It's uh, a really hard question to answer. Um, I'll be honest, I mean, stress and hard work inspires me. I really enjoy like digging in and understanding things. I've always loved to do puzzles. And so I think sometimes when you're trying to figure out how to, how to accomplish something that you know you need to accomplish, trying to figure out all the different pieces, um, that's 
intellectually stimulating to me. I like sort of figuring out where we need to go and how to get there. Um, I love talking to, to um, the folks that I have the privilege of working with, you know, just thinking about different ways of approaching things and being open to doing things differently. And um, change has been, and that's the one, that's the one constant at the board. We've had to implement so many different changes in the law and um, take on different workloads and just manage things. It's been really um, invigorating. So I, I do like, I do like the work and I like the stress part of it and the sense of achievement, like here's the next big goal that we need to achieve. But I think underlying all of that is, I just can't think of any more meaningful work. I can't imagine, I mean, we can deny somebody parole for 15 years. It's, that's a really heavy thing. Um, you have to be a judge, I think for quite some time before you're ever you know, handled, ha handling cases where you're sending somebody to state prison for 15 years. And that's something that we, we could keep somebody incarcerated for 15 years after a single hearing, you know, this week. And that's, that's really significant. And dealing with, um, you know, victims and um, oftentimes um, they're just, there are many who are very angry and very scared right? And um, dealing with that on a daily basis is, it's just really meaningful. Man, I love it. The meaningful work comes out, the stress mm -hmm. that comes out, the puzzle, Man, I'm having all these visuals right now. Jennifer, I have a whole host of questions that I want to ask you. And I call this part um, first date with Jennifer Schaefer. <laughs> Are you ready for a speed round? Yes, but first I'm not thing that sure. Pops in your mind. I can I don't know about that. All right, <laughs> I'm first not... thing. Okay, go ahead. I'll try. Are you ready? Yeah. Favorite place to visit? Yosemite. Favorite food? Oh, I like just a really, really well cooked, wonderful, fresh meal. Um, as far as I, I'm just I'm kind of a snob when it comes to cooking. I love like really, really healthy, uh, well well-prepared meals um but Wait, stop there yeah it's a speed round oh sorry most unusual talent oh my gosh um i i i was a good soccer player as an adult i don't know <laughs> favorite bird oh geez um can i have more than one um probably uh parrots or hummingbirds i don't know <laughs> One thing that's on your kitchen counter that shouldn't be there. Oh, I just got new kitchen counters. They are super clean. I'm like, I, oh my gosh. Um, probably uh, one of my husband's hats. <laughs> <laughs> Favorite artist. Oh, um, you know, I had the privilege of, as a teenager, going by myself at 19 to Paris, and I loved seeing uh, Monet's water lilies. So I, for that memory, I would say Monet. Favorite quote? Jeez, oh, these are hard. Um, I don't know if it's my favorite, but there was a quote from uh, Gloria Steinem about uh, this when I first sort of went down a path of becoming a feminist about uh, she never heard a man come um, ask, um, ask how best to um, balance work and home. And that always struck me as, wow, that's, that's kind of heavy. It's very heavy. Jennifer, I can see why you made such great contributions uh, to the field of public service and how you continue to advance and take on even more exciting things uh, throughout your career. I just love this, spending the time with you. Thanks, Martin, for connecting the two of us. Um, she's a total rock star. You're absolutely right. Uh, yeah, you. I, I, you're not you're not done yet. I, I, I listened to this interview. Thank you, Paul, because I, I said, man, I'm going to let Paul do all this. But I have to tell you, I have to ask you, what is... Uh, actually, two questions for you. How do you balance your professional life and your personal life so well? So I probably, I don't think I would um, recommend this. <laughs> it worked for me. Um, 
I had overwhelming mom guilt. Um, I live in a community where there are a lot of people who um, don't work outside of the home. Um, and so my kids, um, they, they knew when I wasn't available um, like other moms were. And so I very quickly, um, I've kept my work and my home lives very separate, but I always had this, I would be home for dinner. I remember telling uh, the secretary of corrections, I will do anything for you, but know that between five and seven, I will be unavailable. I will come back on at seven, but I always, I wanted us to sit down and have a healthy dinner. I wanted us to come together as a family. But what that meant was when I was at the office, I didn't have time for chit chat because to me, any time that extended my work day was less time that I had with my family and sort of vice versa. So I, in looking back, I probably did not establish um, some of the personal relationships um, that a lot of other people do throughout their careers. I mean, there's definitely some people in my professional life that I consider um, amazing people and I'm very, very thankful that they're my life, but we don't socialize. Um, I, I have kept my work life very, very separate. So I, we would make time to, I coached, I coached soccer, I coached Little League. Um, my husband did as well, separate teams, which was a little crazy, each of our kids. But um, I think that it was always just my home, my family or work. Um, there wasn't a whole lot of room for, for anything else. So and I don't what, know if that answers it. What would the, this version of Jennifer today give the younger, in terms of advice, if you could go back in time and talk to yourself, what advice would you give yourself? Because it, Paul took so many wonderful gems from you. I'm wondering, what would you tell yourself now advice-wise? this is going to sound like such a cop-out. I'm not sure I would want to tell my younger self anything because I learned, I learned so much from every one of those um, opportunities and obstacles. Um, maybe just stay the course. I learned early on in the most stressful times, especially financial stress is like one of the worst stresses. Um, that just writing, journaling, you know, getting stuff out and being able to um, say your piece and then somehow be able to sort of handle it and go on for the next day. I learned, I learned a lot from that. And probably I would just stay the course, you know, just continue doing what you're doing, learn from your experiences and, and move on. And what does your future look like? What's the next things that you, you're, you've accomplished so much in your life? Um, what's next for Jennifer? Yeah. What do you see your future as? You know, right now I have to learn how, who I am when I'm not working. Um, I just had one son leave the country for a year and I have another son off at college. And I, I got to be honest, I'm not sure what I do when I'm not being mom, when I'm not running a household. So I, I need to figure out who I am when I'm not working and um, what, you know, what are my new passions? Uh, I distinctly remember for the moms out there, I distinctly remember when I was pregnant with my first child or I just had my first child thinking, wow, number one, I'm no longer the center of my own universe. And that was so hard. That was a really hard trans transformation for me um, because I, I could see how selfish I'd been, you know, up until that time. It was all about whatever I wanted to do whenever I wanted to do it, right? Whether it was working or playing hard or I used to do a lot of hiking and backpacking. And I remember distinctly saying, you know what, I'm not even going to try to do all that. I'm going to, this is only for, you know, as long as I have these kids this kid at the time it was only one um, that that's not me for a while. I'm going to put all that on hold because I knew if I tried to do everything, I, I wouldn't succeed at anything. And so um, getting back to some of that, getting back to the travel and the backpacking and the hiking and things like that. I, I look forward to that. 
And this is the last question. Uh, what do you want to be remembered for when people think of you and when 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 all of us are no longer here, when people think of you, what do you want to be remembered for? Probably first and foremost, um, raising two, helping to raise two extraordinary human beings. My kids are so good. They're just really, really got great character. They're, they're just they're really, really good, solid human beings. Um, I think second from that, um, that I tried to do the right thing, um, that we, we improved the parole process in California, um, that we were fair in doing so. So I think, I think just having an impact on, on a system um, that in my opinion was quite broken for quite some time. Well, thank you so much. Thank you, Jennifer, for being here. It's been, I mean, I, I'm so appreciative and grateful that you, you know, provided us with this, you know, with this inspiration and just, just being here. I really, really appreciate you being here. And Paul, thank you for taking that, uh, the duty on. You did a wonderful job. And um, yeah, I'm very, very appreciative of you both being here today. It's been a great podcast. And, um, I've learned a lot and I'm sure our listeners learned a lot as well. And and um, join us on our next podcast. We're going to have an amazing guest like Jennifer. And have, keep learning and have a wonderful day, everybody. Thank you so much for having Thanks, me. It was Jennifer. a pleasure. Thanks, Martin. <laughs> Bye.